0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Open your Bibles or your apps to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Continue our study of the journey. And this morning we look at a message of entitled, uh, Squabbling and Stumbling. Squabbling and Stumbling. How many of you cheering for uh, for Denver tonight? There you go. How many of you are for Seattle? Yeah! How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> wow. Go back to that rock you crawled out for a No, I'm just kidding. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Father, we have worshiped in the word, or in song, and we have worshiped as we've heard Mike's story of your grace in his life, which is a reminder to us of the grace in our lives. And now as we come to the word, Father, in the time that we have, I pray that you would help us to see it and understand it in Christ's name. Amen. Squabbling and stumbling. Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Squabbling and stumbling. Maybe you'll remember this story about squabbling and stumbling. A man who was celebrating his 50th wedding anniversary was asked by a reporter, what does he uh, attribute the success to, and specifically the fact that he and his wife never argue, that they never squabble. And he said, well, it started on our honeymoon. We decided we would uh, go on our honeymoon to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon, been there? It's on my bucket list. I've never seen the Grand Canyon. But anyway, we decided to go to see the Grand Canyon, take a donkey ride down to the bottom. And he said, uh, as we, I was riding behind my wife on my donkey, and we got about a third of the way down the Grand Canyon, and her donkey stumbled. And uh, she got off the donkey, she grabbed him by the ears, looked that donkey right in the eyes, and said, that's Once. She got back on the donkey, and we started going down. We went a few more steps. That donkey stumbled a second time, grabbed that donkey by the ears, turned its head around while she's in the saddle, and said, that's twice. And then we got about halfway down the Grand Canyon. Her poor donkey stumbled a third time. She got out with her backpack. She opened her backpack. She grabbed a revolver out. She looked at that donkey and said, that's three times, and shot that donkey dead right on the spot. I began to object and tell her what I thought about it, and she looked at me and said, That's once. (laughs) We don't squabble in 50 years. That's how it took place. Squabbling and stumbling. That's what this passage is about. This is a very personal section of of Mark's uh, gospel. It's a section where Christ is teaching disciples. A lot of what we've seen has been uh, huge, or or talking about Israel and talking about the things that are there. And and although I think that's true here, this becomes one of the most personal times in Christ's relationship with the disciples in Mark. He sits down to teach them. He took the position of the rabbi who was teaching them. He says, boys, I've got something to talk to you about. I've got something to talk to you about. Well, the entire scene starts with uh, the disciples being caught. They're squabbling with one another. Uh, they're, they're headed, uh, it's interesting, the context is quite interesting. In verses 30 through 32, Jesus had just told the disciples that he's headed to Jerusalem. There he's going to be killed and he's going to be resurrected. So he's just told them, I mean, they are in the presence of the one who has said, I, I'm going to die, and then after I die, I'm going to rise again. One of the songs we sang, it was here in his presence. We, we we chose these songs to go along with the text. Here in his presence, we are undone. Here in his presence, heaven and earth become one. Everything in this life begins to fade. That was not the case in disciples. In fact, I leaned over and told Mike at first hour, I said, uh, this song, we're singing the exact opposite of what this text is teaching. You see, the song said, when we come into the presence of Christ, all we can think about is the things not of this world, but of the next world. And everything that we've achieved and everything about us, all of our fame, we lay aside. But here are the disciples. They have just heard. They're in the presence of Christ. They have just heard, I'm gone to Jerusalem. I'm there, I'm going to die and be resurrected. And they are headed out. And as they're walking down the road, they get into a squabble. And their squabble is about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, the problem is when you're with Jesus, he knows everything. And so they're walking down the road, and he looks at them, and he says, boys, what are you talking about? He knew. What are you talking about, guys? What, what, What is this all about? In fact, in Luke's gospel, it says an argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. That's what they were talking about. Christ, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to sit on your right hand and who's going to sit on your left hand? In fact, James and John had their mom go and ask Jesus for those positions. And so what we see here is that they're squabbling not about doctrine, they're squabbling not about uh, strategy, they're squabbling not over character and values, or over the word of God, but they're squabbling over status and position and whether or not they would be successful in his kingdom. And it's interesting, as, as they are arguing, Jesus looks at them and says, boys, what are you talking about? And their hands are caught in the cookie jar like the proverbial child whose hand is caught in the cookie jar, and all of a sudden they back off and look at the next verse but they kept silent you bet they did well jesus let me tell you what we're talking about i want to be the prime minister i want to be secretary of state i want to sit next to you i want to be they weren't going to tell him that and then finally it came out because they knew he knew what they had been talking about they had been discussing which of them was the greatest Who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit next to Jesus? Who's going to be there? Boys, what are you talking about? They are filled with shame. They're filled with guilt. They're filled with embarrassment and they cannot even respond. I mean, you imagine how this argument was taking place. Who's the greatest? Judas might pipe up and say, he trusts me with the money. <laughs> I must be the greatest. John might say, I, I'm the beloved disciple. I'm the greatest. Maybe Peter said, Hey, I walked on water, boys. <laughs> And they looked at him and said, but you sank, Peter. <laughs> Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, Jesus takes all of their cultural values and flips them. You see, in Judaism, status, <laughs> status and rank were of immense importance. Who got invited to events and to banquets was immense importance. In fact, Jesus will talk about when you come and you sit at a table, don't sit at the head of the table, sit at the back, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. Well, that's because status was ultimate in that culture. Same thing today. Not much has changed. To be in a position where you are recognized, to be in a position of success, a position of status, a position of prestige, is something many in our society desire to aspire to. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's the opposite. In my kingdom, that's not the way it takes place. The reward in my kingdom is different. So he sits him down in a position of teaching, and he calls him over and says, boys, let me talk to you. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last, and he shall be servant. If you want to be first, you're going to be last. So first of all, you've got to lay aside pride and be humble. That's what he's saying. And then you have to serve others. Be servant of all. So he took a child and used that child as an object lesson. And he said, whoever welcomes me, whoever welcomes one child like this, and my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes my father, the one who sent me. He's not saying be like a child. He's saying be like I am with that child. He's saying respond the same way children were not revered as they are in our day. The status of a child was to be seen and not be heard. They were not uh, put on pedestals as we often do in our day and age. The word for child here is a young child, a toddler. One of the interesting things here, it says, uh, if you look at uh, verse 33, it says they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. Uh, it's articular. That is the articles used there. Uh, he's been in Capernaum before. When he was in Capernaum before, he several times actually, but one of the houses he had been in was Peter's house. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law there. Some scholars think maybe that's the house that they were in. We can't be dogmatic about that, but they're in Capernaum, the village where Jesus has set out from. And he says, boys, we've got a problem. You're arguing about being great, but I'm going to tell you, in my kingdom, it's laying aside pride and being humble. Scriptures talk a lot about that. In Matthew 18, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 8:13, it says, "To fear the Lord is to hate evil." God says, "I hate pride and arrogance." When God says He hates something, we better pay attention. Scriptures go on. In Proverbs 16:5, it says, "The Lord detests all who are proud in heart." When it says the Lord detests something or hates something, we better pay attention. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with what? Humility. You go the way of the humble. In 1 Peter 5, 5, God gives grace, or God opposes the proud, but shows favor and gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Finally, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall it's easy to have pride I love the story of a grandmother who said I had my granddaughter visiting me one day and she looked at me and she said grandma do you know how you and God are alike and she said I began mentally polishing my halo and I said no sweetie how are God and I alike said grandma you're both old (laughs) pride comes before the fall pride did you watch the Richard Sherman interview after the game a couple of weeks ago? How many of you saw that interview? You want to talk about pride? There's an example of pride. Cornerback who came and, you know, there was a lot of excitement. He just made a great play, but, man, uh, mean, he began touting himself as the greatest of all. Greatest cornerback. Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. I love that story about Muhammad Ali. Ali gets on an airplane. And stewardess comes by, Mr. Ali, buckle your seatbelt. And he said, "Uh, ma'am, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked at him and said, Superman don't need no plane either, so buckle your (laughs) seatbelt. Pride comes before the fall. First, this is how the message translates Proverbs 16, 18. First pride, then the crash, the bigger the ego, the harder the fall. Somebody said ego, E-G-O, stands for edging, God you can't glorify God and yourself at the same time Jesus says you want to be part of my kingdom humble yourself you want to be part of my kingdom serve others you want to be part of my king, you to be servant of all. The next chapter, Mark 10:45 says Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for the many. If you want to look like Jesus, you remember for years they had these WWJD bracelets that people probably many of you wore as well, WWJD. Here's WWJD. What would Jesus do? Jesus would serve other people in our culture and our society. That's what he would do. You see a need, you respond to the need. You see a neighbor who's in need, you don't call up the other neighbors and say, hey, would you go take care of, but you take care of it. I I, I was reading through the bulletin today. Not something I do often, I'm ashamed to say, but I was reading through the bulletin, and it says we need two preschool teachers. I'm thinking, really? 3,000-plus people on a weekend and we still need teachers? Really? Are we serving? Is that indicative of anything in your life, in my life, in our call as servants? When your neighbor's in need, you go and meet it. That's par- the parable of the, great, the Good Samaritan. You go, you see a need, and you meet it. You don't call the pastor and say, Gary, my friend over here has a problem. Would you meet with him? No, you go and meet that need. Now, we'll be glad to counsel, we'll be glad to help, but have you gone to meet that need? You see a friend in school who's struggling, you go and meet that need. You see a neighbor who's struggling, a colleague who's studying, you go and serve that neighbor. Most of us want servants rather than to be servants. Rick Warren says in Purpose Driven Life, it's hard to turn consumers into servants, and he's right. We live in a consumer-oriented society. We desire to be served, but that's not the way the scriptures teach us. Jesus was not modeling servanthood. Jesus was a servant. He wasn't feigning something or role-playing to teach us something. He was letting us see who he was. He was just being himself. Well, they say, Jesus confronts him and says, what are you guys arguing about? They tell him what they're arguing about. So John, I think, confesses. I really think the next verse is a confession. I, I, I think uh, John's heart is pricked in the context that you're looking at. And John says, Jesus, uh, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So do you get the scenario? I don't think John's being cocky. I think John is confessing. I think he's a little confused. He said, Jesus, there was a man in the last village we came from or somewhere in the past. He doesn't say when or where. He says, there was a man who was casting out demons. He was doing it in your name. So he's doing the right thing, and it's bearing the right fruit. I mean, he's doing it in the name of Christ and is bearing the fruit of the demons being cast out. But the problem is he was not one of them. He he was not part of the discipleship group that was traveling. He was one who named Christ, obviously. He was one who had faith in Christ, but he wasn't one of them. What do you do when you see somebody at another ministry, another church, or whatever else they're doing the right thing and bearing the right fruit? What do you do? You honor them. You give thanks for them. You don't speak poorly or badly about them. Jesus says, do not hinder him. For there is no one who should perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for as Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name as a follower of Christ, truly I say to you, they will receive their reward. What Jesus is teaching through John's confession is this. He says, uh, John, saying, you know, they're not part of our group. And Jesus is saying they're doing the right thing for the right reason. So John, don't stop them. John, encourage them. You know, it's interesting what Jesus didn't say here. He, he didn't say, John, if the people are nice, they're in. He, he didn't say if they're doing generous things, they're okay, or benevolent acts are okay. Just because a group is distributing toys at Christmas doesn't make them a believer. Just because people are feeding the hungry does not make them followers of Christ. But he's saying, this man did it in my name. He did it for my sake. So, John, don't be jealous. That's what he's saying. Don't stop him encourage him let's make a pact at tbc let's become the encourager of other ministries in our communities that name the name of christ wouldn't that be a cool thing to be known as one of the things that i do since we moved back in april of last year i drive down 31st street and come down marlinwood to come tbc and i do that several times a week but on sundays I'm driving by and there's First Nazarene Church and then there's the Vine that used to be Canyon Creek Church of Christ and then there's uh, Canyon Creek Baptist Church and as I drive by, I pray for those churches that the God will be lifted up, that the name of Jesus will be lifted up and that those churches will flourish. I drive right by them. Why would I not do that? What if you started doing that wherever you drive from? Sunday mornings when you're driving, instead of squabbling with one another in the car, instead of... Uh, putting makeup on in the car instead of uh, checking out where you're driving the scores from yesterday in the car? What if we begin to pray together in the car? Say, babe, as we go by that church, why don't we pray for them this morning? And why don't we pray for that one when we go by? And that may even get our hearts prepared for worship when we come in. Wouldn't that be a different way to start a Sunday? And so as we hear other ministries flourishing, that name the name of Jesus, that's the important thing here. They're followers of Christ. Don't speak poorly of them, but lift them up. Honor them. Give them blessing. And some of us probably need to confess. We've thrown rocks at other ministries, stones at other ministries, and we need to offer apologies to other ministries because of the way we've spoken of them or thought about them. Well, it goes on. And Jesus issues a word of caution. In the context, when you look at the context, so you saying, I don't want you squabbling with one another. I don't want you squabbling with other people. And then he says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better if a millstone was tied around your neck and you'd be cast into the ocean or the sea. This is what a millstone looks like. If you've been with us on one of our trips to Israel, this is in Capernaum. It's actually, uh, the millstone is the round portion you see on top of the, 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 the area where you would uh, place grain or wheats some or grain, some type of grain. And the millstone was either pulled by a mule or donkey or uh, maybe by an ox. If it was a larger millstone, you can see a larger one back in the back. Or maybe even poles were placed there and men would pull it around so that it would crush the grain so it would be fit to be used. Jesus is saying, Gary... If you're going to cause other people to stumble, it's better to have that big old rock tied around your neck and be cast into Lake Belton than to do that. Sounds pretty serious to me. Does it to you? If you cause one of my young believers, one of these little ones, to stumble, it's better to have that big old millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the ocean. So if we're serious about the spiritual life, we better be asking ourselves a question. What do I do that causes other people to stumble? What do I do? How can I not be one who causes others to stumble? What causes other people to stumble? Yeah, I, I think the greatest thing in the church is hypocrisy that causes other people to stumble. It's when we say we believe something, but live another way. It's when we say we're followers of Christ, but we live in sexual immorality. Don't talk about Jesus if you're doing it. Don't do it. You're sleeping with somebody you're not married to? Don't talk about Jesus. It's it's talking about generosity, but never being generous. It's talking about integrity, but buying things you know you cannot and will not pay for. Don't talk about Jesus. It's talking about the value of work and then being the laziest person on the job or the one that spends all their time on the computer looking at whatever you shouldn't be looking at, Facebook or whatever else, when you should be working. You do more harm for the cause of Christ when you live a hypocritical lifestyle and purport to be a follower of Christ, but do not really follow him. And it's better for you to be quiet about Jesus than to live a lifestyle that looks like the world and have words that don't match it coming out of your life. So Gary, am I supposed to be perfect? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, not one of us. In fact, the scriptures say in 1 John chapter 1, if you say that you're without sin, you're a liar and you make God a liar. If, if you think you're without sin, just come to me. I'll talk to your wife. We'll settle it in a matter of seconds. Come to my wife. She can sell it for you in a matter of seconds. Hypocrisy. Singing in church on Sunday, shacking up on Monday. Being kind to your wife in front of the brothers and sisters on Sunday and treating her or your husband with disrespect on Monday. It's speaking words of kindness on Sunday in front of the brothers and sisters, cussing like a sailor on Monday. Something's wrong with your heart if that represents your life. So he goes on and he says, don't cause others to stumble, and by the way, you shouldn't stumble either. Be careful so you don't stumble, and he goes on to this section, and he says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. I actually thought about doing that this morning just to freak you guys out. <laughs> But I didn't. A little melodramatic, I think. What is he saying here? He's saying, "You know what? It's better to cut your arm off than to live a life of sin and stumble. It's better to cut your legs off than to live a life of sin. When I was a kid growing up in a little bitty church in New Orleans, First Baptist Morera, one of the suburbs, Miss Wright, and we were five-year-olds, mom and dad, remember Miss Wright? That she taught us a song, be careful little feet where you go, be careful little feet where you go. There's a father up above because he's looking down with love. Be careful little feet where you go. Be careful little eyes what you see, and you sang the same song. Be careful little hands what you touch. Where do you think that song came from? These verses right here. Bobby Pruitt, our speaker at the men's conference, actually taught this passage last week. Uh, la- last week he taught, I think it was on Saturday night, and he had some great applications for it. He said, you know, here, most, there are a lot of people that would say, I would cut my right arm off if I could. A would say, I'd go back in time and cut my right off if I could. Rather than cheat on my wife and husband. Man, I cut my right off, right arm off right now. Rather than gone to those places. I've cut my feet off right now. What needs to be cut out of your life? What needs to be plucked out of your life? What keeps you from wholeheartedly following Jesus? What Jesus is saying is, get rid of it. Let me be real specific. For some of you, you need to get rid of Facebook. I've had a couple of young men tell me, I think my wife loves Facebook and her phone more than she loves me. Go to bed at night, want my wife to come with me, but she's on her phone. That's tragic. Some of you just need to get off, get rid of it. Some of you need to get rid of a hobby. That hobby is keeping you from being a wholehearted, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you need to get rid of an idol. It may be a house. It may be a car. It may be a retirement fund. That's all you do. In between patients, you run to look at your retirement, to see what the stock market's doing today. And you get off of work, and the first thing you do is you run home to see what's happened to your fidelity fund. It's your idol. It's your idol. God has a way of stripping our idols away from us. For some of you, you need to get rid of video games. I had a wife tell me her husband's in his 30s. He's not a good husband. He's not a good father because he plays video games. Really? Video games at age 30-something? I want to say, go get a life. And then I realized how prevalent this problem was. I mean, if if you spend hours in front of a television or a computer playing video games, cut your eye out. (laughs) And your your eye there is that video game. I mean, just get rid of it. Don't come here and say, you know, my wife, she nags me all the time because, first of all, wives don't nag. The scripture says it's better to live in a corner of an attic than with a nagging wife. I didn't make it up, it's in the Bible. But secondly, sometimes she's got a good reason to. Time for a lot of dudes to man up. Are these guys in their 20s still living with mom and daddy and playing video games all day? Come on. Come on. Really? Is that what you want to grow up to be? The Xbox gold medal champion of the world? (laughs) And it destroys your life. What is it in your life? Ladies, is that credit card in your wallet right now? How many of you ladies, don't raise your hand, how many of you ladies hide your purchases from your husbands? You hide them. Cut it off. I I, I meet ladies who say, you know, I put stuff in the trunk. When he's asleep, I bring it in the house. (laughs) Really? Isn't that a tragedy? Guilty? Anybody want to raise their hand right now? What have I missed? What have I missed? You know, when I was first diagnosed with uh, this disease, a good friend of mine and I got on my knees in an office back here. And I realized I was guilty like these disciples. Man, I had pride oozing from every pore of my stinking heart. Does your heart have pores? That's probably a bad analogy, but anyway. (laughs) It was bad. How's that? My knee is confessing before God. You know, God, how can I be touching what's yours? How can that be? And I was. What about you? You know how Jesus ends this section? Look how he ends it in the last verse of chapter 9. Be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Oh, here's a quote that Pruitt used last weekend. He's not a, He didn't originate it. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Is that true? You bet it is. Jesus says, cut it out, pluck it out, get rid of it. Why would you want to wallow in the mud with a bunch of pigs, embracing that sin when you can run into the arms of the waiting father? Jesus wasn't modeling servanthood. He was a servant. Jesus was saying, don't be hypocritical. Cut things out so you can honor me. Be at peace with one another as long as you can. Pride comes before the fall. We look one way and we live another. Jesus says, don't do it. It's a story from Mississippi of how this happened. Men who were found out because they were confessing one thing but living a different way. It was a small Mississippi town. Prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney, and the judge all went to the same church as well as a grandmotherly elderly woman who was called to the stand. The uh, defense attorney approached her and said, Miss Jones, do you know me? And she responded, yes, I do, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, and you talk behind their backs. Yes, I know you uh, very well. You're in church every Sunday, but you live a heathen life. The lawyer was stunned, not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the room, uh, Ms. Jones, do you know the prosecuting attorney? She again replied, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was born. He's in our church as well. He's lazy, bigoted, and has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone. His law practice is one of the worst in the entire state, not to mention he cheated on his wife with three different women. One of them was your wife, by the way. Yes, I know all about it. <laughs> the judge who attended the same church called a recess, brought them to the back room, and said, if either one of you idiots ask if she does me, I'm putting you in an electric chair right now. <laughs> Hey, what if somebody said, Do you know me? What am I like? And they begin to point at you. Living at peace with others? A follower of Christ? Representing Him well? Or living a life of hypocrisy causing others to stumble? Father, our prayer is that we would look like Jesus and be like Jesus every day of our lives. We are not perfect. We are fallen, but by Your grace... You allow us to continue to walk with you. If you're here today and you aren't sure if Jesus is your Savior, you're just not sure of that at all, why don't you make sure of that right now? Why don't you confess in your heart right now, Lord Jesus, I'm confused about my eternal status. I want to know with certainty that you're my Savior. So this morning, I ask you for the forgiveness of my sin. I ask you to be my Savior. I'm tired of trying to be good. You heard Mike's testimony. He spent his whole life trying to be good. And then he heard the truth. It's not what you do, but it's a saving faith in Christ alone. Would you do that this morning? Or maybe you're that person out there. You're living a a lifestyle that does not honor Jesus. You might need to turn to that young woman you're sleeping with and embracing a morality with and say, I'm sorry from now on I'm going to be the man that's going to lead you the way we should. And we're going to honor Christ in this relationship. Or you may may be the dude that needs to throw the video game out today. Or you may be the woman who who, who says Facebook is gone. I, I don't know what it is. But he says, cut it out, pluck it out, be done with it. Be at peace with others. God, help us to be that way. In your name, amen.